Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Support for today's episode comes from Benedictine University's Center for Values-Driven Leadership, where they offer a PhD program for senior executives who want to build strong, positive cultures that deliver exceptional performances. The unique curriculum combines academic rigor with insights you can put to work on Monday morning. Through the three-year program, you become an expert in the aspect of leadership you're most passionate about so you can have a transformative impact in your business, and on society. Find out how you can lead your company while you earn your PhD. Visit cbdl.ben.edu slash doctorate for more information or Google PhD Values Leadership. That's PhD Values Leadership. My guest today is Susan Ledger Ferraro. Susan has established thriving transformational organizations across a range of industries. Through her innovative ideas and practices, Susan positively impacts the lives of countless humans and changes the landscape of organizations across the globe. Welcome, Susan. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. I right away noticed this uh, word humans uh, in there. Tell me where that came from, as opposed to maybe just saying people. There's got to be a a reason behind that. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I think that You know, you'll also notice on my signature, I call myself a humanitarian. And the reason for for that, Paul, is very early on, I realized that this whole um, separation and separateness that we had with each other, uh, whether it was gender or racial or um, economic, that we had the opportunity to connect ourselves back to this humanity that was, to me, the most important thing that we had as a foundation in this world. And if we could connect to that and refer to each other as that, maybe it would drop some of the uh, stereotypes and prejudice that um, we had in this world. And so the term human is is now integrated into the cultures of all of our companies. Wow, that's great. Now, there are multiple companies. I think there's four of them. Just to set the context for our listeners, uh, briefly talk about what those companies do. Sure. So our parent company is Vibe Inc. And under Vibe Inc., uh, we have four uh, major organizations. Uh, The first one is Imagine That, which is uh, a social enterprise that serves uh, at-risk communities and works in partnership with the public schools to offer supplemental education in the form of before and after school um, care as well as um, supplemental education during the day and summer camp. And uh, we're predominantly in Massachusetts with that model. And then G3, which is a training, grant writing, and an innovative capital organization that creates opportunity for organizations to access funding, for profit organizations to access funding. And we've written over $45 million for companies to access training grants to develop their people. And we also have a signature content called Human Sustainability that um, is uh, kind of an amalgamation of leadership, 
conscious communication, authentic feed forward, and three other different trainings. And then we have a real estate company called Peace, Love, and Happiness Real Estate that is an international residential and commercial real estate company. And our nonprofit is the Leadership and Literacy Organization that works with at-risk, predominantly at-risk teams, um, and um, getting them into uh, financial and economic sufficiency um, and mostly uh, working with high school dropouts. And we've done that all around the world and actually partnered with um, some really interesting organizations um, such as First Book, um, WGBH, um, the Center for Public Broadcasting to make that happen. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. And uh, lots of different businesses combining for-profit, not-for-profit. Um, this whole idea of doing well and doing good at the same time uh, is something that I know is really special to you. Where did that uh, concept come from? You know, um, <laughs> it was very early on. I think, you know, as I reflect on it, Paul, it's when I was really young, I um, you know, I would sit and even watch TV with my mother and the whole concept of, um, you know, commercials would come on and it used to frustrate me that, um, why are there so many commercials, mom? And she would say, well, they're trying to, you know, that's how the TV shows get paid for. And I used to say, well, why don't they just all come together and do one at the same time? You know, like, you know, whether it was a Kellogg brand or a Tide brand and, you know, she'd say, well, it doesn't really work like that. And mm -hmm. as I, you know, continued in, in my kind of path, um, looking at, uh, you know, what was going on in the world. I, I had uh, an experience where um, when I opened my first company um, and uh, most I was working with at-risk kids and most people suggested to me to become a nonprofit and I couldn't um, integrate it in my mind why it wasn't okay for us to make money and still be able to create impact in the world. And I was probably 16 or 17 at the time. Um, and I, I just, I didn't get it. And, you know, now we have companies like B Corps and conscious capitalism that, you know, do it really well and that's their whole mission. But, um, so I, I really, you know, stood, um, in the experience of, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to work in these at-risk communities with these emerging populations and I'm still, I'm going to be a for-profit and it kind of, the genesis of it was that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it came really from your heart early on is that you saw this opportunity to be of service to others and other communities. But you also said, you know, we can do this and make money at the same time. And like you said, there's a number of organizations now that support that concept. Back then, uh, it was really unheard of. Uh, but uh, where this came from in uh, your behavior, you started talking about your mom. Let me take you back to, um, you know, your childhood, your parents, the early influences, because to have built uh, these multiple companies to the point that they are today uh, and where you are in your journey, uh, you obviously had a lot of influences early on. Let's talk about where that came from, maybe kind of starting with your childhood. Sure. So I grew up um, uh, in a, you know, average middle class family. My mom was a homemaker. She stayed home. My dad uh, was an engineer and uh, worked in, in Cambridge and Boston at a place called Ch Child Stock Draper Lab. And um, to his claim to fame, he was part of uh, NASA and the Apollo 13, the Apollo 11s. He was, um, uh, you know, working in that domain and also taught at MIT. Um, and so, you know, my, my kind of trajectory should have been to go to college like the rest of my sisters did. And, um, 
when I was in seventh grade, my, because my dad worked in Cambridge and we lived in North of Massachusetts in a little town called Methuen, um, he would drive into Cambridge every day and he invited me to this opportunity to be a volunteer at the Boston Children's Museum of Science, um, in this program called the Eye Opener Program. And so, um, I, I would go in during the summer, you know, three days a week, and I was tour guiding, um, you know, children from the Boston communities. And unbeknownst to me, they were the children from the Atmos communities mm. and um, from Dorchester, Roxbury. And I was working with a team of young adults that were in the seventh and eighth grade like myself. And I couldn't understand, Paul, why, um, why these children were coming into this program and didn't have matching shoes and didn't have socks and they hadn't eaten breakfast. And I just, I just didn't get it. And it frustrated me. And I made a, uh, a statement to one of my, um, the girls that was working with me, her name was Suzanne. And I said, Suzanne, how come these kids come here and their parents don't make sure that they have socks and eat breakfast? And she looked at me and she said, Susan, where are you from? And I said, Methuen. And she said to me, so did you ever go over to Lawrence ne- right next to you? And I said, actually, no, my mom grew up there, but we're not allowed to go there. Mm. And she said to me, maybe you should go there. And I didn't even know where she was going, Paul, because I didn't know her well, but I knew that I, 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 was, I experienced shame. Like, I just did something, and someone called me out on something, and I'm not sure what just happened. And I went home and asked my mom, like, you know, what, what goes on over there? And she's like, well, there's a lot of crime, Susan, and a lot of poverty. And at the time, it was the arson capital of the world in Lawrence. And um, we literally would only go there once a year with my mom to go shopping on, you know, the main street. And that was it. We weren't allowed to go there. And when I started looking at, wow, there's all these kids in this world that don't have what I have, right? Because, you know, I went to a private Catholic school, all that stuff. That was it for me. I thought this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And in fact, that is what I did. So I started volunteering, um, around in my local, um, schools, neighborhoods. I volunteered in, um, one of the kindergartens in the area, And I also um, quickly realized that even though people were good-hearted in trying to help these young kids, there was also a lot of unhappiness um, with those adults. They were just not content. They were complaining most of the time. And I thought, I am not doing that. So the thought of like going and getting a teaching degree or, you know, to work in a public school or whatever, um, the teachers were just not happy and they were complaining all the time. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to do it myself. And my father was not very happy. He actually didn't talk to me for about two years because, um, everybody else did what they were supposed to do with my family and went to college. And I said, I'm not. And although I got accepted to many colleges, I ended up renting out an apartment. Uh, I got, I was the youngest person in Massachusetts and still am to this day to get licensed at 17 as a family daycare provider. And I started a family daycare that uh, I called Susan's Playpen that served, um, you know, a diverse population. So I also knew that at that point I I didn't want to just serve at-risk kids. I wanted to integrate um, and bring all types of kids together and uh, eventually called it Little Sprouts. And that was uh, the biggest business that I've had to this date. 
Wow. Uh, what a great story. And, and, uh, it, it took a lot of courage, obviously, to go against the grain, so to speak, in terms of what the the rest of your family uh, was doing. And uh, you know, you hear a lot about the um, you know families where uh, nobody went to college, and then you're the first one that went to college, and uh, things like that. But to go in the opposite direction to say I didn't follow uh, what the rest of my family did, but obviously starting a a uh, Susan's playpen and then uh, starting a business required a lot more than volunteering. You know, where did the kind of intuition come around the business skills or how did you learn over time what it meant to, to run a business that needed to make money? Yeah, well, uh, you know, you learn the hard way as most of us entrepreneurs do and um, at the, you know, hard knock school of life. And, um, but, I, but what I, I am definitely, um, present to that, I was blessed. And I paid attention, Paul, when um, people that I respected would guide me in a certain way, and I would really listen to my intuition. And um, fortunately for me, uh, when I was that young and I was still in the apartment, there was a group in our community, um, and it's part of the Chamber of Commerce. It's a chapter called SCORE, and Mm -hmm. they're they're retired... um, business people that advise you on your business. And, um, a friend of mine said, you know, maybe you should talk to these guys. And I thought, okay, you know, I I don't know what else to do because, you know, as the challenges come up, I had rented the apartment with a friend and she decided to move out. And so now all of a sudden, you know, not only was I, um, responsible for $350 a month, plus all of the utilities, it turned into $750 a month, plus all the utilities. So my expenses increased twofold very quickly. (laughs) And I almost panicked and, um, I met with this group from score. It was a, a woman and a man and they came to my house and sat me down and started talking to me about, you know, what was my long-term plan. And none of this I had ever even thought about. And I'm like, I don't know, you of know course. Like, right. I'm just doing this thing. And the one thing that really tweaked my interest was that they started talking to me about equity, that if I was, if I actually had a house and I was paying towards a mortgage versus paying rent, that I would have this thing called equity that I could borrow off of to be able to grow my business. And when they told me that, I was like, okay, I'm in whatever that thing is. And I actually um, went back to my mom and dad, asked them if I could move the business into their house Mm -hmm. and save money. And so I I did exactly that. I moved the business back into my mom and dad's house. Um, so, you know, we had six kids that would come to the house every single day. I worked two other jobs and, um, in about 18 months I had saved enough money to buy my first piece of real estate. Wow. Uh, you know, what's great in listening to the story there is how you're open, not only to your own intuition, but to listening to others. And at that age, I mean, score, I I can't, I must've been, you know, 40 something when I first heard of score and Mm -hmm. uh, resources like that. And, and as entrepreneurs know, we, we don't go to school for this stuff. We learn along the way. At some point we realize how little we actually know. We start to (laughs) develop, you know, mentors or read books or, uh, find people like you did in that organization. And, um, it just sounds like you were so, open to listening and then running with the kind of advice you were given, which is part of the reason that, you know, you are where you are today. Um, can you think of another, maybe, uh, unexpected learning from an unexpected source along the way? Uh, I will tell you that, um, another really good friend of mine, Dan Griffiths, who I am actually have reconnected with and he's working for us at G3 working with us. Um, 
he he introduced me, Paul, to Stephen Covey. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he ran a company called uh, called Gold QPC, and Stephen Covey was uh, hadn't even launched his book yet, so I think it was 1988. And he said to me, "Susan, this is your kind of guy. I'm telling you, you're going to love him." And I'm thinking, leadership, you know, education. I don't really get it. Right at the time, it was just like you know, and. Uh, you know, Stephen's book was basically talking, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was talking about, um, you know, leadership in the business world and all that stuff. And when I went and saw um, Stephen in person, I absolutely fell in love. And I thought this is the difference that needs to happen in education, in the world is this, this concept of leadership, but responsible leadership, a leadership that first takes responsibility for what they're doing, you know, seek first to understand, then be understood, um, be proactive versus being reactive. He was talking about what I would consider now spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. And it just, I was in at that point and I went and got certified to be a seven habits facilitator. I started working as a consultant for, um, Franklin Covey and, and be, being able to stretch myself into other, um, arenas so that I could get this whole leadership thing. Um, and I integrated it into at the time, what was little sprouts. Um, I, I trained everybody in it. I can still remember, you know, we were, we were in the basement of, um, our second building and we were sitting around, um, about nine of us designing our mission statement. And, you know, it was foreign at the time. It was, like I said, it was probably like 19, you know, uh, 90, maybe 90, 91 at that time. And, and like that whole concept was so foreign to everybody and being able to practice those principles changed the game, um, for, for me, for the company, for, um, the people that we worked with, the, the families that we served. Um, you know, we started all kinds of initiatives off of the, the, the principles of, um, connection and leadership that, Dr. Covey spoke about in his work. And that was a really pivotal moment for me. You know, I, I know that in your business, and this might have been with that original business, you did something that um, not a lot of entrepreneurs do who bootstrap their businesses. At some point, uh, you took on outside capital or you sold the business more than once, uh, worked with uh, venture capital, uh, which isn't always necessarily compatible with trying to build um, a, a uh, the kind of business that I hear you you have built. Um, what were those experiences like? Well, my first question is to you, Paul, as a, a fellow entrepreneur. Did you ever sell any of your business, businesses and take on VC money? No. Okay. Uh, now, and I will say that uh, in in uh, I started my business in 1985, and in 2009. Uh, we decided for the first time, and I will say, not that I didn't try, and early on when we tried to raise money, I started my business with my brothers, nobody would give us any. And <laughs> then uh, I raised, uh, we tried to raise a million two in $15,000 increments, and we raised 15000 um, That was it. So uh, I, I had this thing that, you know, we're going to be able to, we're going to try to do this on our own. I also think that was part and parcel how we did built the culture we did was by having control and doing it ourselves. I did yeah. almost do it in the private equity world in 2010, but with two weeks to go after signing a letter of intent, I walked away just thinking that that business model, not right or wrong, just simply wasn't compatible with the kind of culture we built. Ultimately, I did sell the company to a strategic, uh, and it worked out very well in terms of the culture remaining and, and all of those things. Um, but uh, honestly, I felt that that would be 
bringing on an outside partner, while it might have accelerated our growth, um, would have had a, 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 a be a risk in terms of the kind of culture we built. So I'm just so yeah. interested in how you've been able to do that successfully. Yeah. Well, um, all those same challenges, uh, you know, were placed upon uh, me and my team at the time. And, um, you know, I, I realized, it, you know, right around 2000, you know, I, I had three boys at the time. They were in high school and I thought, OK, what's my next big, big thing? Because we had, you know, five schools at the time. We had the real estate company. We had the nonprofit at that point. Um, we, we, we were in the process of thinking about opening up Imagine That. And I realized that um, that one of the greatest learnings for me was being a consultant and, uh, you know, through working with Franklin Covey. So I started putting myself out there to, on top of running these businesses, I started consulting um, pro bono for some of the, um, some of my friends that I had just grown um, to know so that I could help them access um, grant funds. Because by this time I had, I had, accessed, um, you know, probably close to a million dollars in workforce training funds. That is a very specialized line available to for-profit companies that is probably the best kept secret in our country. Mm -hmm. And to date, we've written about $45 million of grants and it's part of the business model in G3. And, um, the ability to train my people because I was able to actually, the first grant I wrote, we got, we were awarded $174,000 which was a lot, um, you know, back in, uh, you know, 1999, which was the first grant that we, we won. And, um, I was able to train my entire organization in, in not only seven habits of highly effective people, but high scope, which was a very, um, a very deep, highly social, emotional, uh, curriculum process, um, that I always wanted to integrate into our educational model and didn't have the resources to do it. So, when I found these funds, I started really getting into training and development and realized that that ability to call people forward and to sit with them and help them understand themselves was really going to not only change my business model, you know, it's like, you know, as above, so below, it was going to be able to change the world. That's really how I felt about it. And so when I thought about what's my next big thing, I thought, okay, I could just keep doing what I'm doing and have incremental growth, which is cool, or... I could potentially align myself with partners that would help me know what I don't know. Mm. And because I hadn't gone to, gone to business school and, um, or actually hadn't even gone to college, um, although I took courses and, uh, you know, that I needed to take and I would, I was a, a really, um, committed learner. So I was constantly putting myself in workshops and trainings and courses. Um, I realized that I wanted to get on the big stage and I thought, um, let me explore this. And so we actually, we hired a consultant from Harvard business school, um, that came on at a very, um, reasonable rate and worked with us. And what, what really fascinated me was when she came in and did an assessment of where we were at, she said to me, you know what, Susan, it's so interesting. I've worked all over the world and most companies, you look at their website and you go into their, their organizations and what they say they do and what they actually are doing doesn't match. You guys are the total opposite. Your website is okay, and you know when I look at what you're, you you list as your accomplishments, it's you know great. But when I come into your organizations, they're better than what you even say they are, and you guys mm. don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. 
And so she helped me really align the organization so that we were reflective of the type of work that we were doing. And then she said to me, if you're interested in growing, you know, you should look at strategic buyers. You could get bank, bank financing, but it may behoove you to look at a strategic partner. And so for about two years, Paul, in um, 2007, actually we started in 2006, 2007, um, we um, entertained 18 different strategic partners and, and venture capital groups. And it was like having a second and third job. Um, we would spend two days with these guys and they'd be looking through our business model. And we eventually fi- found a group that we, we really did our due diligence, spent a lot of time with them, um, looked at their organizations, met with their people. And at first they were aligned with us culturally. Um, and then they weren't. <laughs> Mm. And right. And so it's that factor of it's easy to say that you're committed to transparency and authenticity and, uh, um, you know, the practice of excellence and leadership. And then when um, in practice, it looks totally different. And that's that's how it uh, really transpired for us. We sold in 2008. Um, right before the the market crashed in February for five and a half million dollars. And I stayed on with them for four years. And at about the two year point, um, after some pretty intense conversations, I just said, guys, like this has been great, but it's not the right fit. And either I'm going to buy the company back or, um, you know, uh, I'm leaving. And, and, and then we and then we ended up selling again in 2012 for 12 and a half million dollars, and at that point I stepped out to rebid on the company, and I bid 10 million dollars, and they sold to um, a, a, a VC, um, not in education, just a nice guy, for 12 and a half billion dollars, and that and that was it. So as you look back, what were the lessons learned there um, in terms of this? Uh, idea of, I want to accelerate my growth. I want to get onto the big stage. Uh, I'm open to uh, new and different ways to do things. And now you look back on those, you know, five, six years of that experience. What, uh, what did you learn from that? I would not give a majority stock ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, because to your point, what, what broke my heart as an entrepreneur was that the culture was being broken in the way that I could see it. And, you know, um, your, your equity is your power in, in these situations. And I would not give up majority stock ever again. Um, I think that how I, how I grew the business at first, Paul, being scrappy, going after grant funds, going after bank funding, um, you know, looking at partners that would invest in the model of what we were doing, whether it was friends and families or larger partners, I, that, that's not what I do. I spend my time, um, building relationships and working with people that want to invest with us, um, rather than going out and, um, and selling, um, the majority share, um, and then being under, um, you know, their culture and the way that they see it. And what I learned also is that it's not about right or wrong. It's not about good or bad. It just was not the right fit. And at that point I had given up my right, um, to be able to, to make a bigger change like that because they own the majority of the company. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a, a fairly typical, uh, way that things go. And, and, uh, that was my experience when, you know, I had 20 bids for 
our company back in 2009 and uh, everybody said the right things. And uh, But I knew that in due diligence, as they, I started just listening to the questions that they were asking that were so short term, that there was uh, very little chance that what we built would have survived over time. And, and honestly, I, I, I sometimes feel like it's not so much even what percentage of your company you sell, because even if is, there's always risk taking on a, a smaller partner, too. And not to say that uh, money taking on money is bad. Of course, that's the way most companies do it. But I, I, I generally tell entrepreneurs the extent that you can maintain control or bootstrap it along the way and do it organically, right. you've got just more control over your own destiny. And because what you have achieved is so unique and special. Uh, I, I feel like that's that's pretty challenging to for others to truly understand and not feel uh, pressure on their own to to monetize. Um, as you've um, as you've grown now uh, and you've got all these multiple businesses, uh, what what are, what would you say are your biggest current challenges, Susan? Um, I would say our. Our biggest current challenges are continue to be developing capacity in the employees and the team teams that we're we're hiring. Um, that ability to practice culture um, requires um, time, energy, and uh, training and developing together, and then executing it in practice is still uh, a challenge not only for our internal companies but our partner companies as well. Um, capital, uh, you know, again, as, as I'm back in bootstrap mode, which uh, I'm happy to be in, um, you know, working with at-risk communities, there is a cap on um, the funds that you charge uh, for mm -hmm. different services. And so capital, you know, um, accessing capital so that we can grow the businesses in a way that has the significant impact that we want uh, is definitely still a challenge in those two areas. Yeah. Um, as you look at just the, the, uh, the team that works with you kind of overseeing this, um, this umbrella group of companies and the companies are so different, uh, do, does everybody kind of understand the, the overarching vision or is there sometimes even a sense of competition ar around them for kind of a place at the table? Oh, no, they, they all. Um, that's one thing we are really good at. Um, we are a family and um, in a healthy family. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we practice what we teach, which is we talk about feed forward which is when we start every meeting, we give each other feedback about what's working and what's not working. We've built it into part of our culture. So um, we also practice this process of saying the unsaid. And so there's not a lot that gets by when it comes to that. They are very complimentary and supportive, and it's taken time, attention, and practice to get them there. And, um, you know, that is an investment that always gives back when you are practicing it correctly. So they're actually not competing. They are they are, um, you know, aligned in ways that um, you couldn't even make it up. That's how that's mm -hmm. how actually, you know, proficient they are at supporting each other and understanding how there is this common theme through all of them, and that they are there to to be in service to each one. And you know, you think about it; it's almost it's education, it's real estate, it's you know, they're not even in the same industries really. Right. And and, and yet, right, they understand how they're all about. Um, humanity. And, you know, in our real estate model, we 
hosted because we do short, short-term rental with Airbnb and VRBO. We hosted over 28, um, 28 different countries last year. And so when we think about what is our purpose in this social enterprise, why are we here? You know, having people come to uh, our part of the earth and to experience what we're about is huge. Um, you know, we, we have partners in Cuba that we're working with, and so we've been, um, you know, blessed to be part of that. And they understand, um, you know, the value and the significance of, of how humanity is woven in each one of these uh, models that we serve and what the purpose of it is. So um, that is something we, we have in, in a very um, gifted strength. Well, and you teach this stuff, so uh, you start right at home, and it sounds like you're doing a great job with that. How about, how about your own personal uh, time, and how is that? Uh, how how do you structure your day and, and uh, manage you know such a diverse group of people and companies? You know, a lot of people ask me that, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I I'm intentional about um, developing the people, so. I, you know, I schedule out, you know, sometimes two and three months in advance, Paul, um, when I spend time with my leaders and developing them. We call it connection time, actually. And we pay each one of our employees and all of our companies to meet with their um, supervisor um, for a, a minimum of an hour. And um, the service leadership team, they get they get paid to meet for two hours. So I'm very consistent about meeting with my people and developing them. And this connection time is not only about how things going at work. It's about how's their well-being in life. How's their family? How is their physical health? How are they feeling about their purpose and impact in this world? And so um, we develop those those concepts and we support each other on it. Yeah. And it create, yeah, it creates a great environment. What, what if you thought about... Um, all the lessons and leadership you've had along the way and your journey continues. Is there a, a part of leadership that you're still trying to work on and improve on yourself? Listening. Mm. Listening is uh, the superpower of any leader. And as you think about accessing the humans that you work with, their, their masterpiece, their gift on this planet you calling that forward in them, Paul, is what helps them get it. Um, you know, early on as a leader, there was a lot of talking, right? I would, I would be telling people, you know, about principles or telling them and talking about, um, you know, why certain things matter. And now what I've realized, I've done a lot of training in transformational coaching and, and uh, cognitive, the cognitive neuroscience around uh, leadership. There's a great organization in New York called the Neuro Leadership Institute, and they they delve deep into how people learn, how, how the how the physiology of the body actually learns and works, and when when in neuro linguistic programming, which is part of it, when your um, when your mind hears you speak out loud, it actually believes that as truth. So think about the implications of that in creating leaders. If I'm telling them all the time, 
and why they should be doing something or how they should be doing something, their brain hears it as information and then kind of regulates it the way it does any other kind of piece of information and does what it does with it. When it hears it come out of their own mouth about what's important to them, why um, they get to step in their leadership and power in a different way, you know, what they get to learn from that experience, where do they get to be vulnerable, where do they get to take responsibility, it changes the entire way that leaders show up in this world for each other and for their teams. So and there's an actual science behind all this. Yes, absolutely. It's, there's, there's a couple of the sciences that we've woven into our G3 model of, um, that we use with authentic leadership and human sustainability and um, feed forward. And even that term feed forward, it's a term that you know we've heard and we've coined. And it's the reason that we use it is because what science has taught us is that when human beings now, in this stage of development in humanity, when they hear the word feedback, they actually shut down. Their cortisol levels go up because they're uh, in fight, flight, or freeze because their stress levels go up because they think they're going to hear what they did wrong. Mm -hmm. And and so we intentionally use the term feed forward so that, one, it in the language, it moves you in a place where this isn't about going back. This is about moving forward and how, how we get to do that. And it also empowers people um, to want to give that feed forward. How... How does that psychological safety show up in language? Because we know that that is an underpinning of, of these sciences, that people want to work in environments where there is psychological safety. Um, Google just did a really big study called the Aristotle Project, and that was one of the top, the top marker of um, well-being, both in results and fulfillment for employees inside an organization, starts with psychological well-being. Fascinating. Uh, and, and to be able to just put this in terms that uh, people can understand and uh, when they're going through the challenges of uh, thinking about a business or starting their business to be able to uh, explain it to them in a way that they can apply it is something that obviously you've learned to do and impact so many different uh, people over time. Uh, if you were talking to someone, Susan, that was younger and maybe just starting out in their career and thinking about what you've done and accomplished uh, what kind of advice would you give them? Hmm. I would tell them that as a leader, the best thing that they can do is practice what they preach. And that starts with taking responsibility. That when you're developing human beings, when you go into a situation, if you're a leader in an organization on a team, one-on-one, you taking responsibility for where the breakdown, where the gap in results um, could have been that you are um, you are modeling for them that we all win and we all lose. We all are successful and we all fail and we get to learn from that. And, and you get to practice that because if there's a breakdown inside the organization, if a goal hasn't been achieved, if something has occurred that needs to be handled and you're the leader, guess what? You're responsible for that. Because those people report to you. So it's easy to point the finger. The bravest and most courageous thing that we get to do in our leadership is take responsibility. I love that. And I don't think we've heard that before in terms of advice to give to a young person just around accountability and to look in the mirror and realize that it's, it's on us. Uh, it's on us for 
choosing who we work with. It's on us to make them understand what our vision is and have them be a part of it. It's on us if things don't work out. We hired the wrong person to make yeah. tough decisions along the way. Uh, I think that's uh, uh, I think that's awesome. Great, great advice. Well, gosh, I have learned so much just in uh, the last 40 minutes or so talking to you, Susan. I want to end up with these five quick hit questions uh, like the association game. Maybe just tell me uh, what comes to your mind. Um, and you've, you've already talked about a couple of these, but maybe there's uh, something else that you think about it. Who's a, a leader that you look up to? Uh, Martin Luther King. Mm. Still. Yeah. Yeah. Never, never changes. Uh, how about a great book that influenced your leadership style besides Stephen Covey? <laughs> besides Stephen Covey. Uh, I will tell you uh, Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. Ah, a great book. Uh, do you have an all-time favorite movie? The Sound of Music. Ah, we haven't had that one before. Uh, wonderful. Um, I don't know if you have time for this, but do you have a uh, maybe if you're on a plane, do you have a favorite TV series you like to binge watch? This is us right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, my wife's into that. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, she couldn't wait for that new season to start. Yeah, and then, yeah. uh, you know, you seem like you're very transparent, but what is there something about you that many people don't know? Something about me that many people don't know is um, I love the ocean. I love water. And uh, part of my passion for being in Cuba and doing the work that we're doing right now in Cuba and with the Cuban people and in the education system is has to do with uh, the feminine energy of water. And I, uh, all of our homes and real estate is around water. And we, uh, part of that is because of um, uh, how it impacts me and my own vibration. Mm. Calming. Calming for sure. Beautiful, beautiful sunsets. I'm just, mm. I'm just picturing it right now. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. Gosh, Susan, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Let me, let me, reflect on a few things that, that I heard and just listen, you know, whether it's just listening to you at the beginning, you're reading the bio, it's clear that, um, you realized in your heart early on that you could do well and do good at the same time, uh, that that's really what your life is about. And, and the fact you don't have to choose, uh, you can do both, uh, these lessons learned, uh, you know, originally from your parents, dad, your dad taking you to volunteer as a tour guide for the at-risk communities in the seventh or eighth grade. Uh, the fact that you were kind of vulnerable and said, you know, somebody called you out and said, you haven't seen what it's like over there. Um, you don't know why, uh, why they're showing up and haven't eaten breakfast and their socks don't match. Um, and once you saw that, you immediately said, I, you know, I've got to do something about this and, and I can't maybe do it in the traditional way simply of uh, becoming a teacher or, or whatever. I'm going to go in a different direction, um, maybe going against your parents' wishes at that time, um, but starting out with Susan's playpen, building into the organizations that you have today. I think one of the things that people need to understand is that the earlier you recognize that you don't know what you're doing, the better. Uh, not, not, I mean, none of us do, and and uh, but we take a long time. Uh, sometimes it's ego or arrogance, yeah. or uh, sometimes we take a long time before we ask for help. And and I think you asked early on, and you not only had good intuition, but um, with SCORE, which is the you know national organization of retired executives that help mm. uh, people, great resource. Uh, learned about equity, which said, you know, how do I, is there another way to do this? I can move back with my folks. I can start to save some money and that money will be able to help me grow the business. Getting, getting connected with Stephen Covey early on and 
and just being so inspired by that, not only to learn it, but then to teach it and have it become a big part of, uh, of your business. Uh, the, uh, the, this fact that you went through bringing in outside capital is that you, as many of us do, we saw this opportunity to be bigger, better, faster, um, listen to people who said they're, uh, and although they could have great advice and, and nothing wrong with their model, that as you look back and said, I don't know if that was the right thing to do, but I, it, it was something I learned and learned uh, in a way that helped me understand what was going to fulfill me and my team. And I'm going to stay committed to that on a, on a go, uh, on a go forward basis. Uh, and maybe learn, you know, you don't want to give majority stock up again, but I think it's more about what, uh, what you're about, what fulfills you and how you pay that forward with all the people that, that you work with. Uh, and, and as you talk about the challenges in your current company as as much as you've achieved to, uh, to agree that culture requires time and energy that we have to, uh, practice what we teach. I love how you talk about in meetings that we say the unsaid and you've created a culture in which people become free to talk about uh, how they really feel. And that's the only way, especially with disparate businesses, all with um, goals aligned under a single vision can be successful. Uh, what you said is the best way to be a leader is to develop other leaders. And that's really what it's about. I used to say in my business that over time, uh, I, I didn't want, I couldn't because I wasn't smart enough to be functionally responsible for anything. Um, we could stretch to bring in leaders that would help us grow the business. And my job was simply to make sure we had the right people in the right seats at the right time. And if we were developing them, then I knew that our, our business would grow. Um, the, the, with all that to say that the thing you're still working on is just listening that that superpower of leadership. And sometimes as leaders, we think we know what the answer is and maybe we do, but if we step back, be a little bit patient, let others be empowered to, uh, bring the answers themselves, execute on them, then we can give them credit for it. Going to change the whole dynamic of, of our, of our business. And, and one that I think is so powerful to those young people to say that, your destiny is your own and that what it means to be a leader is to take accountability that everything you start uh, uh, and ends belongs to you. And when there are failures along the way, before you point a finger, before you blame, you got to look in the mirror and say, what could I have done differently? What is my lesson learned? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think those are things that are going to stay with us for, uh, forever. Uh, so Susan, I, I know your, your journey continues. I just want to congratulate you on the success so far, the impact you're making on humans across the globe. I, I know that there's much more we're going to hear from you and, um, and just thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, for sure, Paul. And I want to acknowledge your fabulous listening because the fact that you can reiterate all of that back is is actually supreme. Oh, well, uh, I wouldn't be doing this if I felt like I knew all the answers. Uh, I'm learning <laughs> along the way, too. And you're right. That's all it is. Is uh, And, you know, in this day and age, it's... Uh, it's something that I think uh, we need more of, which is just to stop, be present, listen, um, uh, look out at the ocean. I know that's something I learned from my wife when um, I grew up on the West Coast and uh, when I met her and um, and I grew up going to the beach and all that. And but, but she had this sense of what it was like to just sit on the beach and look at a sunset. And there was just this, some, this simply, the simple thing about that that I, at the time, just couldn't appreciate 
um, the value of that, even though I grew up in it. And um, it's those simple things in life that make us happy. So um, calm waters to you uh, going forward. And, and uh, again, thank you so much. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time.